All right, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Chip Bishop, uh, and I'm the Director of Student Programs here at Cato. Uh, in that capacity, I seek to connect the research of our scholars uh, here at our policy people um, to students across the country and around the world. Um, our programs include a world-class internship, of which uh, one of our panelists was a participant in the not-too-distant past. Um, we have also fall seminars. We have Facebook and Twitter accounts. Uh, in-house briefings for student groups, and among other initiative, public events like this. Uh, this event, um, I'll be serving as your moderator for the discussion, Is College Worth It? Uh, that question seems simple enough, um, seemingly calling for a, a two or three uh, word answer of yes or no. Uh, but as it turns out, and most of us can gather this, uh, it turns out to be much more complicated than that. Um, and it's an issue that's increasingly gaining attention. If you simply Google, is college worth it, you find that The Economist, Time, US News and World Report, The LA Times, Huffington Post, Daily Beast, Pew, Gallup, and others have recently addressed that very topic. Uh, and that's just from the first page of search results. So you can see how, how much it's raising uh, the question in society today. Um, and uh, as you can imagine, the, the range of answers uh, is quite broad as well. Uh, among these many views, some compete, some complement, and others coexist with each other. Uh, I had a dedicated libertarian send me an email a few weeks ago in response to this event um, to say that college is, is about more than learning a particular set of skills, that college is something of a rite of passage, a growing experience that changes who we are as people, uh, regardless of what we study. And I think those of us in the room that have, have gone to you know, live on campus schools can agree to some of that. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't seem incongruent to also agree uh, with those that say we need to more critically approach the decision of whether or not to go to college or whether uh, to universally recommend that decision to others. Um, the affordability of college and its corresponding value to students uh, has risen to particular prominence following uh, the past few years after the uh, economic downturn of the um, recession in uh, 2008 by the financial crisis. Students aren't finding jobs as easily as they were before, and when matched with a 248% average uh, tuition increase over the past 20 years. Households are spending uh, more than 50% more of their income than they were uh, in 2001, according to a Gallup poll. Uh, while the value of college is a personal issue, the aggregate behavior of these individuals has also led to some uh, impressive national figures. Most notably, that student loan debt has reached the hundred or the one trillion dollar mark, uh, which is actually uh, more than all US credit card debt combined. So what do we do about it? Um, some say do nothing. Others say turn to government programs for safety nets, tuition assistance, or other regulations. Uh, some say freer markets will solve it. Others say universities need to be held more accountable. And still others say alternative models um, should be desirable, whether it's online education, apprenticeships, hybrids of all of those. But one thing's fairly universal, and that this is an important issue that warrants dedicated discussion. And from the looks of it, from the number of people here in the Hayek Auditorium, and from those watching at home in the, the safety of a covered roof away from the rain outside, uh, it appears that many of you guys agree. So that's precisely what we're gathered here to do. Uh, tonight, we're joined by scholars who dedicated a large amount of their studies uh, to the topic of education, and we're fortunate to have them uh, with us this evening. Dr. Brian Kaplan is professor of economics at George Mason University and a blogger for EconLog. His first book, the myth, the myth of the Rational Voter, was named the best political book of the year um, by the New York Times. Uh, his newest uh, book, Selfish Reason to Have More Kids, uh, is now on sale. Uh, he's currently working on his next book, The Case Against Education. Uh, but as they say, you know, don't judge a book by its cover or necessarily its title. 
Uh, he's been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, American Economic Review, uh, Economic Journal, Journal of Law and Economics and Intelligence, and he's appeared on 2020 and C-SPAN. He received his bachelor's degree from uh, UC Berkeley and his PhD from Princeton University. He is a self-professed, openly nerdy man who loves uh, <laughs> role-playing games and graphic novels, uh, and he lives uh, in Virginia with his wife and four kids, referenced the book. Uh, Dr. Beth Akers is a fellow at the Brookings Institution's uh, Brown Center on Education Policy. She's an expert on the economics of education uh, with a particular focus on higher education finance policy. Her previous work has examined the labor market implications of student loan debt and sought to better understand the costs of federal student lending. She previously held the position of staff economist with the President's Council of Economic Advisors, where she worked on federal student lending policy as well as other education and labor issues. She received her bachelor's degree in mathematics and economics from SUNY Albany and has a PhD in economics from Columbia University. Dr. Neil McCluskey, my colleague here at Cato, is the associate director for Cato's Center for Educational Freedom. Uh, prior to arriving at Cato, he served in the US Army, taught high school English, and was a freelance reporter covering municipal government and education in suburban New Jersey. More recently, he was a policy analyst at the Center for Education Reform. He's the author of the book, Feds in the Classroom, How Big Government Corrupts, Cripples, and Compromises American Education. And his writings have appeared in such publications as the Wall Street Journal, Baltimore Sun, and Forbes. In addition to his written work, uh, he's appeared on C-SPAN, CNN, the Fox News Channel, and numerous radio programs. Uh, he holds an undergraduate degree from Georgetown University, where he double majored in government and English, a master's degree in political science from Rutgers University, and a PhD in uh, public policy from George Mason University. Uh, the uh, proceedings for this evening's uh, event uh, will be Dr. Kaplan will lead us off, followed by uh, Dr. Akers and finally um, Dr. McCluskey. Um, we'll be following that with a guided section of moderated discussion uh, where the scholars will talk to each other and I'll pose some questions from the podium and then we'll open it up for the real fun part, uh, Q&A with the audience. Uh, we will then continue uh, the discussion at a reception out in the Winter Garden. If you're tweeting, we encourage you to use the hashtag Cato College to follow other people in the room who are also commenting on the issue. Uh, so without further ado, here's Brian Kaplan. Uh, thank you very much, Chip. Uh, right, so let's just start with realizing that the question, uh, is college worth it, has two very different meanings. Uh, part of the disagreements that people have is probably that they are switching back and forth between the two meetings or talking past each other. So I'm going to try to get them clear and then address each one separately. All right, so first of all, there's what economists usually call the private return, although it might be easier to think of it as what I call the, the selfish return. So if you're only looking out for number one, you're saying, what is in it for me? Uh, is college worth it? I remember when I was an undergraduate, there was a poster that many students had which showed a mansion with four luxury cars, and underneath it said justification for higher education. So that is the selfish return to education, which is one question on many people's minds. Uh, the other one is what you call the social return. Is it beneficial for society if the number of people going to college increases, stays where it is, or goes down? All right, so in other words, so meaning number one, you could say is, you know, selfishly speaking, is college a good investment for the student? Right, so that's where you think about the student as thinking like an investor. Uh, meaning number two, socially speaking, is college a good investment for taxpayers? This is where you imagine the taxpayers are looking out at the country and saying, is this going to be a good investment of our tax dollars? So are we going to see a country that is noticeably improved or improved by a, by a larger amount than we could spend then by spending these tax dollars on something else? 
which of course includes not sending the tax dollars to Washington at all. Uh, now, the case against education, which is my book in progress, uh, considers both angles. I keep getting questions about when the book will be done, and my current answer is 2016, and then I don't want to release it during an election year, so I think I will be crowded out by all of the election festivities. So 2017 is probably it. Uh, the book is taking longer to write than anything else I've ever done because there's just so much written on the subject, and I'd like to be very knowledgeable about a book about a subject before I write a book on it. Which, you know, should, shouldn't be controversial, but all right. So uh, selfish return to education. Uh, so basic facts: so college grads make 83% more than high school grads. So people have only gone to high school. So people have actually finished college make 83% more. So this is from the 2011 uh, CPS. Uh, if this were 100% causal. If the sole reason why the college grads are making 83% more than the high school grads were the fact that the, that the college grads had finished college and the high school grads had not started, that would be an enormous payoff for an investment of four years' wages plus four years' tuition. Right? That is quite amazing. 83% over every year for the rest of your life, all you have to do is give up four years when your earnings are low and pay tuition for four years, uh, which, you know, of course, at state schools is still while more than it used to be is still not that much. Uh, the, you know, the main problem with just naively saying all 83% of the gain is due to college is that college grads typically arrive on campus with big labor market advantages. So the typical college grad was an unusually employable before they actually even started college. So one big difference uh, is IQ. So it may, it may not be the most polite thing to say in, in, uh, in conversation, but the fact remains that college grads do tend to be smarter than people who were not college grads, and they were generally smarter beforehand. They were generally smarter before they even started college. In fact, you can give IQ tests to seven-year-olds and get a pretty good prediction about what's going to be going on. Not a great prediction, but better than any other one fact you can know about a seven-year-old. Uh, some other things that are harder to measure but still seem like they probably are important, uh, the work ethic. So someone who finishes college probably arrived on campus with a stronger work ethic than someone who said, I don't feel like doing that. I'm just going to stay in my parents' basement and drink beer. All right. Uh, and there's many other possible reasons why college grads or other possible pre-existing advantages that college grads could have had. Uh, so I sift through a lot of evidence in my book. And my conclusion is that about 55% causal is a pretty reasonable estimate. Uh, there is a range where you can go, so I'd say that you know, 80% causal is about the highest I think you could reasonably go, and probably about 30% causal is the lowest you could reasonably go, but I think about 55% is pretty fair. Right now, I say, like, if you go and multiply that 83% by 55%, that's still pretty big. Uh, that's still pretty big. Uh, however, uh, this is only an average, and it is important to realize the returns predictably vary, uh, and widely. So it's, you know, if everyone got exactly the average, it would be one thing, and just reporting the average is all you need to know, and then we'd have our answer. Uh, however, if the, uh, you know, if the, if the returns uh, uh, do vary from, uh, from person to person, if, again, if we're unpredictable and random, then still you might say, well, maybe you'll do better, maybe you'll do worse, but who knows. Uh, the fact, though, is that we actually have some very strong predictors of whether or not you are going to do better or worse than the average college student in the labor market. Uh, so one very big factor is your choice is your college major. Now here, again, when you go and compare students with different majors, there is also an ability problem, namely that the high-ability students tend to also do the hard majors that pay well. Uh, here is a fact that always amuses me. Engineering majors not only have higher quantitative SAT scores than English majors, they have higher verbal scores than English majors. 
So the engineering majors start with some substantial academic advantages over English majors, uh, which means that when you correct for ability, the high earning majors are going to seem less amazing in their earnings, and the lower, and the lower earning majors are gonna seem less abysmal because it is generally the students with lower scores who are going into the lower earning majors. Uh, so there is a substantial literature where, where economists try to look at the return by major and adjust for it. Uh, one of my favorite pieces by, is by Altanji, some co-authors in 2012. And uh, what you get from this is if you, do, if you correct for ability, the education premium uh, you know, varies from something like plus 24% for, for education majors. So getting a bachelor's degree in education looks like adjusting for all the other stuff we can figure out uh, will raise your earnings by about 24%. Whereas getting a, uh, we're getting a bachelor's degree in engineering looks like it's going to increase your earnings by about 60%, over and above whatever advantages that you brought to the table or didn't bring to the table. Uh, so that's one very big factor, uh, which is well worth knowing. Uh, another big factor, though, uh, which has been studied every now and then, but it's only recently that there is now a big cluster of working papers where economists are taking this seriously, uh, is graduation probability. Graduation probability also depends very heavily on pre-college academic performance. Okay, so think about this. Suppose that you're a bank and you are making loans and you're charging 10% interest. You would not want to then say, we, we, go, we went and took a look at the loans that were repaid, and we made 10% per the contract, so we get a 10% rate of return out of, the, out of lending out these funds. Right? But what about the loans that don't get repaid? What if, well, it's only like 5%, so that doesn't matter much, does it? If 5% of your loans are not repaid at all, and you get 10% interest on the other 95%, what is your return? It's not 10%, it's 5%. So, you're, so it actually, that, actually, that small default probability cuts the bank's rate of return in half. Right, now, you think about non-completion as being the academic equivalent of defaulting on a loan, where you put in the expenses. You put in your time, you put in your tuition, but you don't actually get the, the, the education successfully completed. And then you presumably don't get the labor market reward. Right, so this is a graph out of an AER piece by Bounding co-authors in 2008. This shows eight-year graduation rates by high school math ability. So this is your probability of finishing college eight after eight years. So that is you know, a fairly generous time to completion for, for four-year degrees. Right now, this shows, first of all, data from the NLS 1972, but then also from the more recent stuff from 1988. And I believe both of these cases, this, yeah, so this is, the, you know, the data was collected first in that year, and then you're taking a look at their completion, completion probability four years later, so this, or you know, eight years later. So this is comparing the 1980 numbers to the 1996 numbers. All right, so if you take a look at that top quartile of mathematical ability, uh, there you've got about a, you know, so in, like, in the early period, about a 67% chance of finishing your degree within, uh, within eight years, 73% chance of finishing it uh, nowadays. All right, go down to that third quartile. So these are people in the 50th, 51st to 75th percentiles of math performance in high school. Then we're down to just a little bit under 50%. Uh, then we go down to that second quartile, which actually is, you know, your chance of, of trying to go to college in that second quartile now is pretty substantial. Uh, but here, now, the uh, completion probability in more recent years is about 30% for people like that. And then finally, we get down to the bottom quartile of mathematic ability, and we're talking 11%. This is out of people who start. So the people who try to get a college degree who are in the bottom quartile of math ability in high school have only about an 11% chance of actually getting over the finish line. Uh, now, you, know, you might say, well, it's not so important whether you finish or not. You get some time, you get some payoff. Uh, this is where another very, uh, major empirical finding plays a key role. This is called the sheepskin effect. Uh, it is called this because in olden days, diplomas were written on the skins of sheep. Okay, so you would actually get a diploma which was written on a sheepskin. 
Uh, so when economists have taken a look to see, well, why exactly does college give you this 83% payoff? Is it like one quarter per year of college? Or is it less for the early years and then a big payoff for crossing the finish line? And the answer is, for college, about 70% comes from finishing your senior year. So the actual payoff for those first three years is quite small. And it's really getting over the finish line that matters. So when you see that students in the bottom quartile of mathematical ability only have an 11% chance and only 11% completion chance, that means that they are probably getting almost no financial payoff out of college. Okay, so this brings us to this. So this is my take on the private return uh, so far, which I'll come back to recap. But uh, now let's move on to the social return to education. Um, now the question here is, so why is college so lucrative? Right, so you know, college seems to be a very good deal for students in the top levels of academic ability in high school because, you know, they, of course, they are they're very likely to finish. They're likely to do the harder majors, put it all together, and it looks like they are doing very handsomely for themselves. Uh, but then you also notice that even people who are doing the easier majors, as long as they finish, seem to be doing quite well. So why would that be? Why exactly is college so lucrative? There is a standard view that economists believe almost instinctively. This is what, I, what you can call the human capital view, and that is that college instills a ton of job skills. So if you were to believe that 83% gain that you, that you would naively think from just looking at the raw numbers, say, well, what happens? You go and take a student, you send him to college, and then professors lecture at him for four years, and as a result, he's 83% more productive on the job. That is a story that you could tell. Now, if you've actually experienced college, and I suspect everyone in this room has experienced some college, it is very hard to believe this story. Uh, most majors, even lucrative majors like econ, are not remotely vocational. So yeah, there's engineering, there's computer science, those are only a few, those are only a few percentage points of total majors. You know, and why are why so few people do engineering and computer science? Well, if you do those majors, you don't really get to go to college. If you do those majors, you're working really hard for four years, not seeing the light of day. Whereas if you do another major, like, you know, like say you do econ, which I like to tell my students is the highest paid of all the easy majors, then you can have a four-year party. Well, yes, you go and you, yes, you go to classes for a few hours a week, do a little homework, study for exams, and the rest of the time you just enjoy yourself, enjoy life, which the engineering majors don't get to do. At least according to my dad, who was an engineering major. All right, so most majors are not even are, are not remotely vocational. Economics, I would say the only plausible vocational skills that we teach students who don't want to become academics are how to calculate a present discounted value and basic statistics. And outside of top programs, I don't see that students even learn to do those very well. Uh, now, you could also ask yourself, in real life, when do college grads use their knowledge of history or literature, foreign languages, right, or even higher mathematics? Uh, when, you know, so when, uh, there's actually been work on, out of all the people who studied higher mathematics, how many actually use it in their jobs? It's quite rare. So I think it's maybe only about 25% of the people who took the time to learn higher mathematics have jobs where, in fact, you need to know higher mathematics. Uh, now, the human capital model fails to explain some other blatant facts which I believe, as people who probably have spent some time in college, you have noticed with your own two eyes. Uh, so first of all, the sheepskin effect. Again, like, almost everybody knows if you are a week away from graduation, then even if you must move heaven and earth to fin it to get your final exams, you do it. Because otherwise, the labor market will hold it against you. And, like, and the other story is pretty hard to understand. So you, imagine, you think that professors uh, you know, cram 70% of job skills into graduation year? Is that your story for why it is that 70% of the payoff comes from finishing senior year? Well, that seems pretty hard to believe. In fact, the normal stereotype for senior year of both a college and high school in America is senior year is goof off year. It's not that senior year is finally learned some job, some job skills here. So, 
another thing that's kind of puzzling, uh, students seek out easy A. Students generally prefer professors who give, them, who give them high grades but don't teach them any useful skills, professors who give them low grades but do teach them useful skills. In the human capital model, this makes no sense. Look, go to the professor who teaches you how to do stuff, who give you, con who give you, give you concrete abilities that will pay off in the real world. On the other hand, uh, you know, someone would go to get some of these EAs because, because employers don't know who the easy graders are. So if you, have great, if you have low grades in your report card, the fact that you actually learned a lot may still mean that you don't get an interview. Whereas you didn't learn a lot, you have good grades, you fake it through the interview, and then you learn as you actually, once you're actually on the job. Uh, much easier than uh, if you didn't get the job in the first place. Uh, another puzzle that uh, human capital has trouble explaining. Uh, students worry a lot about failing final exams, but not about forgetting what they learn. Uh, many people stress, they sweat bullets right before final exam, and then the, uh, as soon as the final exam's over, they never think about the subject again. They don't worry, well, I was taught this thing, and employers are going to obviously want to see whether I remember my medieval history, so I better stay, I better stay fresh on this stuff. Right? Nobody says this. Right? You, what, you, what you really want to deliver to employers is a transcript that shows that you were able to jump through some impressive hoops. The fact that you've forgotten stuff that you're never going to use again, you don't care, employers don't care, it doesn't matter. Uh, something else that uh, is quite striking, student, uh, so uh, students rejoice when professors cancel class. A common experience. You tell your students that I'm going to cancel class and they are happy. Uh, this is really odd on a human capital view because it's basically like, we're going to go and give you some tuition to give us some job skills, you're going to keep the money, and then you're not going to show up, and we're happy. That is bizarre. You know, if you were paying some roofers to redo your roof, and they said, you know what we're going to do today? We're going to go to the beach, we're going to keep your money, and we're not going to fix your roof. How do you feel about that? I said, what? <laughs> that is my money. I demand that you provide the investments that, that I have paid for. Students do not have that attitude. Right? And I've noticed that my kids, who are very nervous about ever missing school, still are very happy on snow days. And I try to not lead the witness. So why is that? I said, well, on a snow day, nobody goes to school. So the teacher didn't teach anything. So you're not at any disadvantage compared to anybody else. So it doesn't matter. Aha. So yes, they have independently figured out the signaling model. And, or a last one that I find kind of funny. Uh, professors don't check IDs. If you go to your HMO, they want IDs now because they're concerned someone might try to get free healthcare. On the other hand, professors do not make any effort that I've ever seen to try to keep out non-paying students from attending classes. Now, on the human capital view, this is odd. Like, what, like, if you can simply move to Princeton and start attending Princeton classes to get the best education in the world for free, why, wouldn't, why would you ever pay tuition? Why would you even bother to do the whole college application process? Why not say, I want to go there? move there, and then attend classes. And in fact, if you, if you even tell the professor what you're doing, most professors get a little tear in their eye, like, you want to learn from me? This is the first time this has ever happened. Right? Uh, and yet, there is one little problem. You could spend four years go to, doing free classes at Princeton, but at the end of that time, there is just one thing you won't have, a diploma. You won't have any record you were there. And how would the labor market treat you? Probably worse than if you actually got your diploma from George Mason. <coughs> All right, so, uh, you know, so a, a simple resolution of this is what economists call the signaling model of education. Uh, the quick version of this is that the main reason the labor market rewards college degrees is not the college instills job skills. Instead, the labor market rewards college degrees because graduation signals, demonstrates, proves, convinces, certifies your pre-existing traits, such as intelligence, conscientiousness, and especially conformity, I think, more and more. In our society, getting a college degree is what you're supposed to do. And if you don't do it, you are basically saying, people say I'm supposed to do it, I don't do what I'm supposed to do. Well, then I don't want to hire you, because working for me is about doing what I say you're supposed to do. 
Uh, now, selfishly speaking, it really doesn't make any difference why the labor market why the why the labor market rewards education, but socially speaking, it makes a huge difference. So think about uh, trying to see better at a concert. Everyone's sitting down. You personally want to see better. What can you do to see better? Obvious answer: stand up. So therefore, it follows as night as day that if everyone in a concert stands up, everyone can see better. Right? No, wrong. Like rather, you well, if everyone stands up. No one is seeing any better than anyone was before. You were just getting in each other's ways. Right, so in the signaling model, education is actually a wasteful arms race. Uh, the more people get, the more you need to avoid looking like a loser. So in 1945, only about 25% of Americans over the age of 25 had finished high school. Back then, you could get a job as a manager because you had finished high school. You can impress someone's parents. He's a high school graduate. Wow. All right, not so anymore. Why? Uh, not, you know, like, you, not so much because the jobs that people do have changed radically, but rather because the, uh, the credentials that, other, that the competition have uh, have gone up, and you need and you need to match them or to exceed them in order to continue to impress. Uh, now, how wasteful is this arms race? Uh, so, in my book, I go through a wide range of methods, which uh, which all converge on something like a 2080 human capital signaling breakdown. It's like 20% human capital, 80% signaling. Many people mis um, missummarize me as saying it's all signaling. No, I don't say that. I do say it's mostly signaling, though, and I think it is in fact something like 80% signaling. Uh, so, three different ways that I look at this in the book. Uh, why don't I just take a look at time use in the curriculum? Just take a look at the amount of time people spend on different subjects that, that plausibly or implausibly are actually useful in a job. And there you see that, that, that the vast majority of time is actually spent on stuff that it's very hard to see most people ever using in a job. Uh, the sheepskin effect. Again, just seeing how large that sheepskin effect gives you an idea of how much of what's going on is probably signaling. And the last one is comparing the payoff that countries get when they raise their education levels to the, to the payoff that individuals get. So in the signaling model, if everyone gets more education, then everyone is not going to get a raise. Especially, you know, say, or, they might, or at least they're going to get a smaller raise than if only, than if only one person did. Right? And well, like, so while the data here are not great, still, like, averaging over all of the work that has been done, it is, uh, it, it is pretty clear that, the, that the, the return that nations get when they raise their average education levels is much smaller than the return that individuals get. And you can't just blame this on, say, the crumminess of schools in India. Because while it doesn't look like education has done much to help Indian growth, still with Indian labor, within the Indian labor market, employers do pay more for having more credentials. It's just that it do doesn't seem like it actually helps the country. All right. So uh, two punchlines here. All right. So is college worth it? Uh, selfishly speaking, college is a good deal for good students, a mediocre deal for mediocre students, and a bad deal for bad students. Right. And you know this is not my fault. I'm just I'm only the messenger. Uh, but you know, in the same way, if someone were to, to, ask, uh, to tell me that I should send my kid to basketball camp, I said, well, my kids are not tall enough, they're not very athletic, they're not competitive, they're a lot like me. So like, the fact that the basketball camp might be a great investment for someone who had a lot of pre-existing talent does not mean that it's a good investment for my kids. And, you know, people often get annoyed and say, well, you want your kids to college. Well, my first two kids I already know are good students. So, yeah, they, for them, they are the kind of people that the data say will do well, do, will, will do well in college. My younger kids remain to be seen. They're still unknown. So. If they are not good students, I will not, I will not strongly encourage college. But, uh, now, socially speaking, uh, though college is a terrible deal for taxpayers, which is the heart of my book. So under plausible assumptions, once you multiply those private wage gains through by 20%, right, which is the human capital part, the social rate of return is actually sharply negative and even for good students. So this is still work in progress. So if you've got stuff to show me, I am very happy to see it. I'm, I'm in the process of writing this up right now. Uh, but still, so, so here is my slogan. So if you are a smart student, college is a great investment. But if you're a smart taxpayer, subsidizing college is actually a big waste of money. Thank you.
So I'm a scholar at Brookings where one of my roles is to respond to media requests. So basically just means answering questions for reporters when uh, my issues, which is higher education finance, becomes a hot topic. And so when I started that, uh, this job about two years ago, it's my first time in Washington really working, and I was getting calls from reporter every day, reporters every day saying, is college worth it? Is college a good deal? Should everyone go to college? And I thought to myself, I just spent the last 10 years in college. It's got to be worth it, right? <laughs> OK, so I wasn't actually that naive, fortunately, or hopefully Brookings wouldn't have had me as a, as a fellow there doing work on this issue. Um, but I did think this was sort of surprising, right? What had turned to cause the narrative to become so quickly, is college worth it, right? Previously, it was clear that there was an overwhelming policy push to get people to go to college. And then something had relatively suddenly changed that people were asking this question. So as I started to investigate this issue and the shift in the narrative, there were these, uh, this one anecdote that I thought was helpful in, in shaping the change of the narrative. So first I have um, an excerpt from President Obama's remarks at the State of the Union addressed in 2009. He says, by 2020, America will once again have the highest proportion of college graduates in the world. So basically, this is the President of the United States saying, go to college, it's worth it. Right? Or at least that's the implicit message. So then four years later, the excerpt on higher education from the State of the Union address says, uh, introducing a new policy, says, my administration will release a new college scorecard that parents can, and students can use to compare schools based on simple criteria where you can get the most bang for your educational buck. So this is a pretty significant shift. The president is saying, first of all, just go to college, right? Unqualified, it doesn't matter where you go, who you are. This is the right thing for you. It's the right thing for our country. And maybe I'm you know, expanding that a little bit more than what he actually said, right? But this is sort of the message behind that. And then four years later, the message changed to, yeah, you got to be a really savvy shopper when you're thinking about going to college, right? So it's no wonder that all of the media stories are saying, is this worth it? Is this the right decision for students, for the country, right? So it's sort of natural that the, the debate or the, the narrative has shifted in this area so dramatically. So to give my response to this question, um, first I want to, again, identify what is it that we're asking exactly. And since I'm an evil economist by training, I'm, of course, answering the selfish question, which is, are there individual returns to this exercise? And I certainly appreciate the validity of other frameworks for thinking about this question, but I leave that to other people to discuss because it's not my expertise. So um, I won't go over um, a lot of the uh, financial returns, because I think Dr. Kaplan did a great job of identifying it. But what we have as an overview is basically from a number of different methodological um, approaches, we see that there are large financial returns when you, you think of this as an investment, right? They're greater to some students, lesser to, to other students, um, and potentially not at all for others. Um, we pair this with the fact that there are growing costs in education, throw it all together, and come up with a number, right? So there's an answer here. If you think of it as a, an, an investment, is this investment that pays off? There's an answer. And the answer is yes for many students. Okay, So this comes back to the heterogeneity point that was addressed in the previous talk, so I won't uh, go on too much about this. But college is worth it for a lot of students, and it's not worth it for a lot of other students. So I get sort of frustrated that we continue to ask this question over and over, because I think we need to start asking the question, 
who is college uh, worth it for? For whom is college worth it, right? Who should be going? What colleges should they be going to? What should they be studying? And taking more of a critical approach to this question rather than this overarching, what is the right answer for everyone? Because there really is no right answer for everyone. So I think the, the reason we've gotten ourselves into this position of asking this question is because of the um, media coverage of higher education, which has really emphasized on the growing cost of education and the growing debt burden for student borrowers. So you constantly are seeing the $1 trillion or $1.2, $1.3 trillion number for the amount of outstanding student loan debt for borrowers in this country. Um, you're constantly hearing stories of people who borrowed way too much for the degrees that didn't pay off, and they have to live with their parents in the basement and eat ramen noodles for dinner every night. And I always ask, why do they have to live in the basement? Why can't they live upstairs? But that's <laughs> beside the point. So how does this reconcile with this evidence that says that on average, or at least for a large number of students, college is worth it, right? So um, the truth is that this is not an accurate portrayal of what's happening. So for the average borrower, the amount of debt that's taken on through the process of education is manageable. So people don't have, on average, $100,000, even though they do $100,000 in debt, even though among the sample that the New York Times interviews, the average is $100,000. Okay, the actual average is $25,000 for a bachelor's degree recipient. Over the course of a lifetime, that's not a tremendous amount of money relative to the additional earnings, regardless of which estimates you're using. Um, so I'll, uh, I'll, I'll close here and basically just say that I think we, we want to come back to answering this question in a more nuanced way, not asking is college worth it in a blanket statement, but start thinking about how individual consumers can make informed decisions about college. I recognize that part of the reason we can't do that now is because the data doesn't exist for people who wish to be sophisticated consumers to make decisions using data. And this is one of the areas that policy can really move forward. Um, so increasing the ability of people to be sophisticated when they're making this decision um, through financial literacy, through provision of government data, um, and lastly, making sure that uh, safety nets are available so that we don't have this continued narrative about the people who made unfortunate decisions and are in dire uh, financial circumstances as a result. So, up there. Well, uh, I guess I'm going last because uh, I'm, uh, I'm the dummy in the group. I was an English major. Um, and so you can tune me out if you want to, if you need to take sort of a mental break. I do have an answer, though, why the kids uh, who graduate with lots of debt are always in the basements because they can't afford bathing materials. Uh, so we've answered that one question. Uh, as for whether or not college is worth it, uh, Brian said a lot of what I'm going to say, so I won't belabor this too much. But basically, the answer is it is. Uh, but then I'm going to tell you nothing but bad things about college. So. Uh, Brian, first of all, mentioned the non-completion rates for eight years. I'm going to give you the more, uh, the sort of federal standard of 150% of expected time. So if you're in a four-year program, how many finish in six years? If you're in a two-year program, how many within three years? And if you're trying to get a certificate, you know, how many people are within 150% of the time any given certificate is expected to take? Uh, using those rates, I should also note uh, these are federal numbers, so there, there are big caveats with this. One, it's for first-time, full-time students. Uh, 
It's for students who complete at the institution uh, where they entered, and it's for full-time students. So this clearly leaves out a lot of people. These are probably then uh, on the low end of completion, but they're still, in many cases, so stark. It's quite clear that the first problem we have is people who don't finish. So the best of the breakdowns of sectors of higher education for six-year graduation rate at private nonprofit schools, and even there, six-year graduation rate is 65.4%, so pretty low. For the two-year and certificate programs, it's actually the private for-profit schools, which probably shocks many people who follow this, but about 61.7% of people who go to those schools finish. However, if you look at public two-year institutions, so the community colleges, their completion rate is only 20.2%, so about one out of every five. Now, granted, many of those are probably transferring, many of them may eventually complete, but that is still a very low number. And based on what Brian said, and I think what is pretty well established, the big problem for people who enter and don't finish is they don't get that sheepskin effect. And so this is the first thing we have to talk about is when we talk about is college worth it, is not focus on what are the benefits for somebody who finishes versus somebody who only went through high school. We also have to deal with how many people go and don't finish, and that seems to be a very sizable number. And I think that often gets overlooked when we focus on earnings premium for a college grad versus just a high school grad. Then let's move on to people who do finish. Then we have a very serious problem, I think, of underemployment. So the New York Fed recently, but many others have also looked at this, have found that over several decades, it's been about a third of people with bachelor's degrees are in jobs that don't require that credential. That is significant underemployment, but it gets worse. Uh, the, the New York Fed, again, then looked to say, well, what's the quality of these jobs that people who are underemployed have? And, and so some of these jobs still pay a pretty good wage. They have a good professional track that you can follow, a real career track. And then others don't. Low wage, no real uh, uh, career track. And they found in the 1990s about half of people underemployed were still in these sort of decently paying uh, career track jobs. But by 2009, only 36% were. So not only do we have about a third of people underemployed, but increasingly those underemployed people are in worse and worse underemployed jobs. And then this problem is not just for undergraduates. It also applies to people with advanced degrees. So the Center on uh, College Affordability and Productivity estimated in 2000, well, estimated in 2011 using 2008 numbers that 59% of master's holders were in jobs that didn't require that degree, and 22% of people with PhDs were in jobs that didn't require that credential. And that's a really important number to dig down a little because they assumed that those people still weren't underemployed if they were in a job that the Bureau of Labor Statistics said has to have a BA or higher or a master's degree. So it's probably worse than that 22%. Then we, let's look at the people who you know, aren't technically underemployed and who, of course, then have finished college. The first thing we have to, I think, grapple with is the cost of getting that degree or that especially the skills that we think they're trying to get, is probably way too high. And that's probably the case even if you turn a profit on your cost. So even if the foregone wages, your, your uh, tuition costs, um, even if those are ultimately overtaken by how much earnings benefit you get from having the degree, you've probably still paid too much. I mean, we're all familiar with rampant tuition inflation, which has really gone on for decades in higher education. And I think a lot of this 
is because of third-party payments, third-party uh, money, especially from the federal government, where we enable colleges to raise their prices at rates they otherwise wouldn't, and drive extra consumption. And there's been some good research just recently that shows that students will demand more of these consumption goods. So not more education, but the, the nicer recreation facilities and administrative offices and things like that, because they have this money. Then we have a serious problem, or likely a serious problem, of credential inflation. So as Brian talked about, you know, it used to be the basic signal was uh, I graduated from high school. Then it kind of moved up to I got a bachelor's degree. Now it seems to be moving that you have to have a graduate degree to distinguish yourself. Now we don't have a, you know, sort of one best clear measure of what people learn and come out of with in college. And, and that's probably impossible because we all have these different majors. But we do have some, some, some broad uh, ways to look at this. The first one is the National Assessment of Adult Literacy. Now, unfortunately, that's only been done twice, 1992 and 2003. And it would be, be nice if someone were to do it again so we could get a third data point. But with just the two we have, we see big drops in proficiency, often 10 percentage points, both for people who have just a bachelor's degree and for people with advanced degrees. So what that at least suggests is you have more people with those sheepskins or pieces of paper that say, I have a degree, but that degree signifies less and less that somebody has skills or abilities uh, that you used to think were what came with a college degree or an advanced degree. Then you can also look at earnings as, again, a sign of what might be happening. Uh, between 2000 and 2012, only the weekly wages of people with advanced degrees went up not people with just a college degree. And this is important because usually when you see a presentation of the earnings that you make by education level, you'll see less than high school, high school diploma, some college, and then college or above. You really need to pull out the four-year degrees and the two-year degrees versus the advanced degrees to see this, this sign of credential inflation. It's only those advanced degrees now that continued to have some increase in their earning ability. And then finally, many of you probably know Academically Adrift from Aram and Roxa came out a couple years ago. And they sort of uh, catalog uh, what's actually going on in the schools that suggest that there's less learning going on. So they talk about big decreases in studying time for students, uh, decreases in critical thinking, and things like that that suggest the reality of what's actually happening in the schools is less learning. So that again gets us to the question, is college worth it? And while I've given a big tale of woe, I think, on higher education, it does seem that generally going to college is worth it. There is a flip side. There is the big average college earnings premium. So maybe not, you know, typically the number you hear is the average college graduate will earn one million more dollars over a lifetime than someone with just a high school diploma. And probably that is way too high. In fact, I've actually seen it recently. It said it was $1.1 million. But even the low estimates still put it at hundreds of thousands of dollars, which generally means you're making some profit on your going to college. So that would make it worth it. And college grads do have lower unemployment rates and things like that. In other words, on average, college is worth it. But again, it's almost certainly far too expensive. And it's sort of a Venus flytrap you know, for, for people who are told, and, and as President Obama was saying a few years ago, 
Basically, we say, every go to college. That's the key to getting in the middle class. If you don't go to college, there's something wrong with you. And so we encourage lots of people to go, and many of those people, for many reasons, don't finish. And so they've put money into this endeavor, and they're not getting that sheepskin effect. Um, and then based on credential inflation, based on what we see of, of how much knowledge is actually represented by these degrees, it's quite clear that a lot of people are probably spending too much time and money, more than they should have to, to acquire really just a framed piece of paper rather than hard skills or abilities or something like that. So what's the solution? And I throw this out here mainly to, well, not only to stir debate, because I think it is the solution, but I think people will disagree with this. I think ultimately the, the main part of the solution has to be to phase out federal student aid. It has to be people consume higher education with money that's theirs or they get voluntarily from someone else, which requires them to make more efficient decisions. And I hope that we'll have that as part of the debate. Um, but again, it is something that's a little bit paradoxical. College probably is worth it, but probably really shouldn't be. All right, now we're going to have some discussion among the panelists. Hopefully, your, your co-panelists said something that made you want to think of somebody else, something else to say. Uh, but I'm going to kick it off with uh, a couple questions of my own. Um, the first is, are we stuck in a spiral that we can't escape? Because if we have the signaling effect, you know, presumably an employer that doesn't need the education of a bachelor's degree, given like a bachelor's degree student or one without it, they'll take the signal so that just makes you know the people that don't have that signal more incentivized to go and get educated, and then have this extra loan, oh, these loan debts. And can we get out of it? And are we stuck in that cycle now? Either one of you, any one of you. I'll take it. Uh, so yeah, so in the signaling story, education is a rat race. However, there is a way to make the rat race less le less vicious, which is to stop encouraging the rats to fight each other. And that you can really think about all the money, not just the federal government, but the state government, and not just, not just for higher education, but at all levels of education. All levels of government put about a trillion dollars worth of money on the, scale, on the scales of the status quo every year. So uh, if, that, if that trillion dollars were reduced, there is every reason to think that the amount of education that people would get, get would decline. The economists have spent a fair amount of time looking at the responsiveness of education to the, to the financial cost. It seems to be fairly substantial. Of course, most people look at this and say, that's terrible. If, if the cost went up, 40 people would do it. But if you buy the signaling story, you say, wait, no, it's not terrible. It's awesome. It's actually just what we should want. This is a way that we can get people to de-escalate this arms race, which is when it's more expensive, you do less. And when everybody does less, you don't need as much in order to impress employers. Sure, I'll jump in here. I think uh, what you described happened to a small degree during the financial crisis. And I think that coincides with the shift in narrative that I was talking about earlier. And there was less money on the table. It wasn't the government's money, but people had less of their own money on the table to pay for college. And all of a sudden, now everyone's asking, is it worth it to go to college, right? So the margins on these things got much thinner. And I think it prompted people to start to take uh, a more nuanced view about the decision to go to college. So yeah, I think it's conceivable that we could move away from this equilibrium of of the arms race. Uh, I'll, I'll just, I mean, you've said basically what I'm going to say. Uh, obviously, I think we do need to reduce aid. I do think that you can also, though, look at technology has begun to provide options that are different than the four-year you know, residential 
model that we're used to where you can get specific skills and that may be able to you know, reduce how much people are going to pay for higher education because they can uh, more efficiently just get specific skills and abilities. It, I think it's still too early to say whether that will be transformative, but it's there. And I should also say that there is probably a lot that could be done at the K through 12 level. Uh, in particular, a lot of other countries have uh, far more robust apprenticeship programs and things where you can, in your high school years, basically, you can go and, and apprentice at, at a, a company and in industry, learn specific skills, also get your academics. Uh, then you get to know the people in these companies. Everybody seems to benefit. And I think we could have a more robust vocational options so that we're not sort of pushing everybody into into you know, what we call colleges or universities. I mean, so one other thing that you, that could also be done is just to be more honest to students who are not very strong ac academically. Right now, we tend to just give them hope and say, maybe if you go to college, everything will turn around for you, rather than saying it's 90% unlikely that will happen. And in real life, responsible people base their, base their decisions upon numbers, not hope. Uh, so you know, right now, there really is a lot of pressure on high school students, regardless of their performance, to go to college and just say, look, if you are having a lot of trouble getting through high school, then it is just not true that college is going to be a good deal for you, on average. And then, and you know, there are, then of course, there are, many, there are many occupations which are well-paid, which don't require college, but they are seen as low status. And teachers, of course, don't like to tell students to become plumbers or electricians. But those are, for many people, much better career paths. And you know, the, the idea that it's not fair or it's somehow condescending to tell someone who's not likely to be good at something to not try it. You know, if someone told me to not become a football player, I wouldn't get mad. Say, well, yeah, well, of course, why should I be a football player? I don't look like the guys who are good at football, so I'm not going to be a football player. Don't go and tell me, like, try and maybe you'll become one. One in a million, that's, I shouldn't waste a year of my life for one in a million chance. So, Beth, you mentioned this a couple of times, and you guys kind of referenced it. Um, this is a big, broad question, right? And you, you sliced it, Brian, in your first sentence at the podium that, like, it depends how you look at it. That's why there's a lot of debate. So what are some of the more nuanced questions that we should be asking? Um, you could toss out you know, questions and maybe an idea for how the answers would, would look. Anyone have any ideas? We only have answers, not questions. <laughs> like what, what should we look at to get to the heart of this issue? I mean, I'd just like to have better data on completion probability. So you may notice I went and showed you graphs based upon high school math scores. But when I was looking around for, some, for something that was much more sophisticated, where you were trying to get a much finer grade prediction, it's just really, it's really like very often the data just doesn't exist. So I mean, just better data you know, to figure out, you know, given everything we know about you, what are your odds? And, 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 and by the way, so like, you know, one thing that's striking is very, there is a big debate about is the reason why students with low test scores, uh, is the reason for, their, for the low graduation rate the low test scores themselves, or is their family income, or the other thing? Or is it you know, some other problems they have? Is it because they need to work during school in order, in order to pay their bills? Selfishly speaking, it doesn't matter why, really. Selfishly speaking, if you only have a 10% chance of success, whether it's fair or unfair really doesn't make a difference. It may make a policy difference, but if you're giving prudential advice to people, then knowing what the probability is is much more important than arguing about is it fair that this is the way the world works. Well, you know, like, I don't control the fairness. I'm just trying to bet four years of my life on my future. Should I do it? I'll jump in to connect a couple of the ideas I think that are already on the table. Um, one is this idea of being honest with students about their likelihood of success. Two is reduction of financial aid. And I think 
these are necessarily connected. Um, one area of concern for me is that we give students open access to uh, debt, regardless of their predicted ability to succeed in college. And a lot of people will th think of this as a, a fairness policy, right? Regardless of your circumstances, where you start out, you have access to this, you know, essentially unlimited amount of debt, um, and that evens the playing field. But the reality is it's not fair to students who are not likely to succeed to give them the same amount of access to debt as students who are very likely to succeed, right? So you're, in a way, setting them up for a uh, future of failure by not being honest about uh, the future, you know, in terms of their likelihood of completing degree, which is really the most relevant statistic, but of success after graduation as well. Yeah, I, I just I would pick up on that, and I think that's absolutely right. Is that we tell everybody they should go to college, and then uh, again, it goes. It's largely the federal government that provides aid directly to students, and they will give you as much money basically as you need without any real differential between whether you are ready to go to college, whether you're going to major in something lucrative or not. I think this is would be one of the benefits of moving to real private lending or private, you know, it doesn't have to be lending, it could be these human capital contracts that you hear something about a little bit more than you used to, where you have somebody objective, not you deciding whether or not you should go to college, but somebody who can look at you from outside and say, look, this pie isn't really the best thing you should do. And I have an incentive as the lender to look at you objectively because I don't want to lose money and I don't want to hunt you down to try and get your loan back. And that's a real benefit to the people who we say to go to college, and the federal government now will give money to go there, and who probably aren't going to finish. But that, that I'm going to ask a question like you wanted, uh, so, and I'm going to lead into it now. Uh, what we hear, though, is that increasingly it seems that a college that takes a student is assuming a responsibility to get them to graduate, presumably without making their... their uh, degree any less meaningful. In other words, not cutting corners by just passing everybody. And there's a lot of talk about remediation. And I mean, to what extent do people think that a college can successfully remediate somebody so that, you know, if they weren't, you know, ready to do engineer level math, that they could be remediated by a college and then be prepared to do that sort of engineering level math? Is that something that it's reasonable to ask colleges to do, or is it really just pie in the sky or scapegoating or what? I'll let you guys try to answer that. And I'll, I'll tack on another question is, are colleges, should they be accountable or responsible for the students that they take that then can't get jobs? Could you have a class action lawsuit against a college that sends all these people away with their sheepskins and they can't get a job even with that effect. Well, I'll answer your question because it's a little easier for me. But, um, you know, I think that there is a need for more accountability in the higher education system. And to some people that means uh, what the, the president has proposed, which is a rating system. Um, to me, that means more data. I want the market to hold these institutions accountable. So we've highlighted the point that uh, there's a lack of data that a student can't look at an institution and tell what their likelihood of graduating is. Um, they can't look at an institution and tell what is the average earnings of people who have gone to that institution. 
So to hold institutions accountable without that information is very challenging. So this is actually what's been proposed um, by the administration uh, to put in place a rating system that can be used to do just that and essentially use the rating system to communicate to people shopping for college um, you know, which institutions are good, bet, or not. I'm not sure I, that I think that last step is necessary, but I do think it's incredibly important that uh, the, the information become available so that the market can be the, the policeman. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you were to make colleges accountable for their student success as a condition of getting federal money, then schools would turn down the money, which is what I want them to do anyway. So, <laughs> uh, you know, the, like, if, you know, like, if it were to actually happen, it would be a gigantic mess. But I think that the anticipated mess would be so frightening that it would actually be enough to get schools to say, well, we don't want the money that badly to have to worry about getting sued. Uh, so. I guess like I was sitting here and kind of like my red, white, and blue blood was tingling because all of you were kind of like betraying the American ideal, <laughs> right? That there's the underdog story. You know, do we want to really live in a Gattaca world <laughs> where you're biologically engineered and if you can't hack it, you don't get the same access. There's no way you can succeed, so you shouldn't even try. Don't we already live in that world? Do we? But we live, like, there's a lot of other countries, their education system pre-selects people way, you know, in elementary school, high school, but a lot of, like, the American spirit is you get to go and make your own way. Is that utterly unfounded? Should we I mean, Isn't the American spirit really to do the same thing as other countries but pretend we're not and to be more dishonest <laughs> about it? I think this idea that the, the dream is to go to college and to get a master's degree or to get a PhD is that's what's wrong there. The dream, the dream is to be prosperous, right? And there are a lot of channels to prosperity. And I think what um, some of us are saying here today is that college is not the right channel for everyone. Um, and so, you know, having a, one answer to that question is college worth it or not is really not the right way of thinking about it. But, but yeah, I think part of it is reframing the way that we think about success. And having a bachelor's degree is not the single measure of success in life, or at least it shouldn't be. Yeah, I think all that's right, but I'll, I'll put on the K through 12 hat then and say that, you know, because I have red, white, and blue, tingly blood too, um, that I think some of this is the fault of a K through 12 system where we don't give anybody options. I mean, we don't want to use the old German model of you take a test when you're in eighth grade and then you are stuck in a particular track. But we do want to give people robust choices they can make themselves to do things that are not all on you're going to go to a four-year college with a triple with a liberal arts core and then do something else where you say look if somebody doesn't have an interest in that they can begin to pursue vocational work or something like that and i think we do need to and i don't know how to do this but as a society we need to destigmatize jobs just because they don't require a degree i mean somebody who is a mechanic uh you know i, I know from my own car <laughs> but I can't do anything with my car. It's great that you have mechanics there who really know a lot. I can't fix anything in my house. And it's great that there are real experts who have real abilities who can fix it in my house. And those people can command a fair amount of money. You, you can't really outsource the job of a plumber. And so we need to stop as a society saying, well, you must be lesser if you don't have a bachelor's degree or if you don't have a master's degree or something like that. I mean, just one comment from Neil. So it's actually not true that the German system tracks you in the way that Americans think. So it's not the case that you take a test and then the, go the government says you, will, you are now a worker bee or you are now going to be a scholar. Uh, rather, it is a recommendation and your parents are allowed to override it. 
So That's why I said to used to be, yeah. ah, not right. anymore. But the, okay. the fear people have is of the old system where you took your abitur and boom. Yes. I mean, yeah, so it is true that if you do, if you go contrary to recommendation and then you fail, then you get moved back to where you would have been. But that's not so different from a system right now where if you fail a grade, you get sent back. So. Cool. Well, I'll transition now to the Q&A, um, but uh, I'll kind of load one in the hopper first. This comes from uh, Isaac Morehouse. He says that he runs a, a college alternative called Praxis. Uh, and one of the things that they do is offer a signal to employers based on knowledge, work experience, and character traits like work ethic. And he said he hears from employers that the signaling power of a typical degree is getting less and less valuable. Do you see this as a good opportunity for alternative signals? And what's the biggest challenge you think they will face? I'll take this. Um, oh, did I step on you? Oh, no, no. oh OK. Um, you know, I honestly believe that this is the way of the future in education. So there's so much signaling value in the degree. And the internet age has brought about an alternative, which is um, you know, credentialing without traditional education. It used to be the case that in order to access um, these faculty who had a particular training and expertise, you had to move across the country or move across the town at least and, and live in the place that that person was teaching. These days, you can get a degree through um, a la carte method, right? So you take one course here, one course here, one course here. There's going to be a new role for institutions that can grant credentials based on a collection of experiences, whether it be coursework or you know, work experience, life experience, otherwise. So my feeling is that the challenge that these institutions will have going forward is gaining credibility in the market. But I think that this new um, price sensitivity of people, both on uh, you know, employer side and on the student side is going to drive this uh, industry to exist. I mean, if you think of an employer who's right now hiring people with bachelor's degrees because they think the bachelor's degree is a signal of a good quality employee, but they realize I'm not, I'm not getting any skills out of this person that they learned throughout their bachelor's degree. Maybe there's an alternative, cheaper signal that'll get me, you know, almost as far or even farther, right? And so they may be turning to these alternative technologies uh, as a way of getting information about employees. I mean, I wish everyone who is working in this area great luck, but I'm not optimistic they're going to succeed uh, for two reasons. Uh, so one of them is, of course, there's a trillion dollars per year on the side of the status quo. So a trillion dollar subsidy from government at all levels for education on all levels to keep doing things basically the same way that we've always been doing them. And secondly, even without that subsidy, a big part of what college signals in our society and what employers value is just conformity. Now, there's an inherent problem with coming up with a weird signal of conformity. Right? When you, when you, I'm going to go and show my conformity in a way that no one else has ever showed. That doesn't convince me that you're a conformist. It convinces me that you're not a conformist. And sure, nonconformists are great when they go and start a business and do something different, but you're not here to start a business. You're here to take orders and do what I ask you to do. And that's making me very nervous. Uh, when you think about all the different kinds of conformities that societies around the world and throughout history have expected of people, like, why is it that men are supposed to wear suits? One of the worst garments ever created. And in DC in the summer, you're still supposed to wear a suit. But do you want to be the first man who doesn't wear a suit for business meetings? You know, there's some places where you can do something different. But in general, it is like, you know, there is a, a social expectation. And if you break it, the first person who does something differently is going to suffer. And if the first person who breaks it suffers, you don't want to be the, you don't want to be the first person. And if there's no first person, there can't be a second person either. I mean, I do think that what's probably going to happen is that technological innovation will deliver some niche products that are useful in some areas, but I don't see that the status quo is going to change very much as long as all the money is on the side of the status quo. And even if the money were taken out, I'm 
not that optimistic that something new is going to come along. Again, just because conformity is so important, and what counts as conformity is, you know, to be, sound like a sociologist, it's socially constructed. Like in our society, you were supposed to go to college. There's a certain path that you are supposed to do. Everyone knows what our society expects. And to be a person who says, I'm going to do the opposite, now reward me, uh, maybe it'll happen, but not so likely. Well, you know, I, I like to be as pessimistic as anybody. I like to be <laughs> the most pessimistic about change. And I, I mean, I agree with you that the subsidies give a huge advantage to the status quo. But it does seem to me that you've seen some growth in these alternatives. And to follow the stood analogy, I, you know, I turn on TV and I do see more people on news shows that don't have a tie on and, and uh, the people at Silicon Valley kind of broke the suit. So, I mean, you, you do need to have these people who are willing to break the mold, but sometimes it can catch on. Do you, do you just yeah. not think yeah. that's every, likely? Every now and then, but I just, w I wouldn't count on it. And even with the suits, actually, it looks, looks like there's been a reversal. I know in my wife's industry, uh, like the financial crisis caused an end to casual dress codes. And you know, now we need to reassure clients that we're super stodgy and that no one should be frightened of dealing with us. So, I mean, yes, I mean, like, you know, norms do change. And when people, when people want to change norms, they like to point to the exceptional cases where they do change. Like, you know, we're no, we're, we are no longer treating gays nearly as badly as we did for all of human history before. All right, that's, that's great. Uh, but, you know, in 1960, should you have been optimistic about this, or should you have said, hmm, the, like, well, there's thousands of years before, and like, if it's going to change, probably would have changed already. So, well, yeah, may, like maybe. Uh, but if I had to actually bet money on there being a big change, actually, I have bet money on the change. So I have several bets that the fraction of, of, of college graduate or of high school graduates that go on to college will not decline by more than 10% between like 2010 and 2020. So, yeah, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if there was some mild marginal move, but I think that. As long, especially as long as subsidies are here, I fear that the status quo is here to stay, which of course is great for me since I got tenure, but terrible for the taxpayers who <laughs> subsidize my lifestyle. All right, I will transition now to Q&A with one quick anecdote on that point. I've been getting a lot of resumes. We have a big internship program here at Cato, and the resumes are now listing courses like Coursera, uh, Khan Academy, and those, and on the margin, they actually influence our hiring decisions. So it's not as a substitute to education, but it's a supplement so that we see that someone that may have studied uh, sociology actually has practical policy skills. So maybe it's supplementary, at least at this point. So, uh, so we'll open the floor to questions and answers now. Uh, if you raise your hand and we call on you, I'd ask that you would just you know, give your, your personal affiliation and then uh, get as quickly to the question as you can. Um, and we'll start here on the side, the gentleman with the blue shirt. Please wait for the microphone also. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank you all for your viewpoints and uh, for the uh, Bill Maher kind of uh, panel. Um, I just to have a question for uh, Mr. Kaplan, uh, because you uh, spoke about this in terms of courses that students are actually required to take but don't fulfill any knowledge or any desire they have. I know that I read that when I was in college, I took courses in uh, art history and theater because they're required. When in fact, I entered college, hoping to major in history and government, and eventually did. Would you recommend uh, these alternative courses that are required at many schools um, be um, eliminated, and in place of them, um, suggest uh, courses that the student actually has expressed desire to take, or um, or some um, or some internship programs or uh, experience? as a resolve to actually them taking courses which maybe they have no knowledge in, desire in, and more likely are likely to do well in due to this lack of interest? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say as long as you can keep your accreditation, absolutely. 
Uh, accreditation is a big issue. So part of the reason why universities are so stodgy and don't want to change and don't want to give flexibility is accreditation. I actually called up my son's fifth grade vice principal to try to get them out of the music requirement because they hate music. And forcing them to do it is making them hate music more than they ever would on their own. And uh, he, you know, he actually he was very nice. He took my call and he said, I'll get back to you. And then he said, sorry, I went and looked in our manual and they were, they were required by Virginia law to go and take this amount of music. Uh, so I told me, look, I tried. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so if, you, if, if I could go, you know, like get rid of these requirements for thing, for, you know, for like to say that people don't have to do things that they will never need to know, um, you know I, I would like to spare them the suffering. And this is so, you know, even, even though I put a lot of intrinsic value on high culture, I still don't want to have conscripts in my classes. I don't want to have people there that don't really want to do it. In the same way, I wouldn't want to go and herd people from baseball games into the opera and say, well, opera's awesome, so you should spend some time doing it. I think it is awesome, but I don't want to have people sitting there suffering. So look, you, know, like you need to come to it in your own time, and if that never happens, then that's, what's gonna, that's, how, that's what we should have. Can I, can I just do a quick plug? Because sure. two weeks ago, we had an event here on accreditation, which you can still watch online, college accreditation in the crosshairs. So if you're interested in more accreditation, go online. You can watch that. Two panels. Very exciting. All right, the gentleman in the center here, please. You can also ask questions via Twitter if you guys are watching online or if you're sitting in your seats and don't want to raise your hand. Uh, just <laughs> add the hashtag uh, Cato College. Um, my name is Steve Hankin. I'm actually a, uh, a student at George Mason University, as Brian knows, because I've taken a couple of his classes, and I'm retired. And I have a kind of unique perspective in that I went, I, I, I went to school when I was young and have three different degrees. And when I went to school, my major motivator was getting good grades. And uh, it was getting the, the second was the general certification of having the college degree. The last thing on my mind was, you know, trying to pick up skills. I didn't know what skills I even needed. So I, how could I make that determination? Having said that, um, I just want to say that I, th I think that students and the students in the universities, that they, they tend to be not customers. They tend to be beneficiaries, even at private universities, given that, they, that at almost no university does a student pay the full tuition. It's subsidized one way or another by the, the government, by the, the, the donator, the people who donate and give uh, the university give, having a, uh, a lot of money that they can. In other words, it's not operated as, as a private concern. And as a result, my, my, my point to you is what other service do we have in society where, where the customer is not king? The, the normal way, we want the customer to decide. Try going, try going to any university and tell them, well, I wish you'd offer a course in this. Will you consider that? No. Um, try going to the professor and saying, you know, I've seen what your, your syllabus is, but maybe you want to think about doing this. It's, Great, it's, that, just, it's not thanks. done. Thanks. Um, so, but was, sorry, was there a question? In, in what other industry is the uh, customer not king? Why, or what, to put it another way, is why is it only in education where we, we, the, a service is out there and the customer is not king? 
Well, do we know? I'm not sure the customer, there, there are a lot of constituencies at a college and university, but it's fairly clear to me that many colleges and universities certainly cater to all sorts of things that students want. I think the, the other part of the problem is that, no offense to faculty members, but they also have a whole lot of power and they have a separate agenda often to do research and not to teach. But from what I've seen in higher ed, it looks like that those constituencies, both the students in many cases and the faculty are getting a lot of what they want. It's really just, it's the people who are paying so much with the taxpayers don't seem to get much benefit. I mean, I would say any time that parents are paying for their kids, you see similar things. So if you go and take a look at the local Taekwondo classes, a lot of those kids don't want to be there and they're suffering. Why? Because their parents are paying, their parents make them go. Uh, so like, like, you know, like, you know, that, that is a key thing is, you know, again, especially about for traditional college students, they're there because you know, their parents are paying, their parents are the real customers. Then why is it that the parents aren't more discriminating and having their money paid? Well, the parents basically want to be able to first of all say my kid's going to college, and second of all, have a reasonable chance that their kid will get a bet will have a get a better job after that. And as long as we deliver that, parents are happy. Why? You know, so and why should anyone else be asking a lot of questions? Also, you know, totally true that to a large extent, universities are basically worker co-ops where the where different tribes of workers decide what, whether they would like to have another person in their tribe. And like, well, do we like that person? Do we want to lunch with that person? Of course, not my own university, which is run in a totally different manner, but all other universities I, that I am aware of are, basic, are basically like worker co-ops where the departments decide who they want to hire and, most, and mostly who they want to keep. And, and, uh, and as long as the customers, the, the parents are getting the, uh, the bragging rights and a kid that gets a, a better job after graduation, it's, it's not going to change. I mean, like, even the subsidies then, of course, make it a lot worse. Oh, gentleman on the aisle there. My name is Stephen Shore. The, it seems that all of you assume that educational institutions are fungible, where in reality there's a, somewhat of a difference between being a graduate of UDC, for example, and Harvard. And uh, I was wondering if there's any way, or if, of course the, there is U.S. News and World Reports, but many institutions fudge their numbers or make certain changes like yield rate to get higher ratings in U.S. News and World Report, which does not actually improve the educational product. And I think a lot of employers would rather hire a Harvard dropout than a UDC graduate. So I'm wondering if there's any way of breaking out the findings according to the quality of the institution. I think I've, of law schools, for example, which are an extreme degree. If you're not in law review of about, just about three different law schools, you never will be a Supreme Court clerk. I can take this. So um, actually, it's, it's very difficult to distinguish the quality between the, the vast majority of institutions that are out there. Um, I hate to harp on the data issue, but it, it is a data issue. So there are some um, analyses that try to do this right now. For one, we have the U.S. News and World Reports, right, which is maybe a good measure, maybe a bad measure, but it's just a single measure. It certainly doesn't encompass all the dimensions that most people care about. If, you if you're an economist and you think of people's earnings after college as a good proxy for how good they are, in some broad sense, um, then we can look at data like the pay scale data, which is where people volunteer their earnings and information about where they went to school so that we can aggregate some information about how graduates do from different institutions on average. Um, and that data is okay, but we don't have a national database 
that allows us to answer that question. Um, there's actually legislation that restricts us from, or restricts the government from creating that data set, from doing analysis on it, or allowing people who are curious, like myself, to to use it. Um, so, you know, to answer the question, I think that there's a lot of ambiguity in this area. It's difficult for um, employers to distinguish between quality of institutions. I think they do, and they they probably have rules of thumb that they use rather than you know uh, qu quantitative sort of uh, ways of thinking about the question. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I appreciate your frustration. So, so what I would say is there are, your researchers actually looked at many different measures of college quality to see whether they pay. Most researchers find the common sense result that the institutions that, that we think of as being better lead to higher earnings, even adjusting for the, the, the fact that they get better students in the first place. Uh, although the reason why I didn't actually put that in my slides is there is a contrarian other literature finding the opposite, and I find that literature pretty convincing. And what it says is, uh, you know, this is mostly from uh, Dale and Kruger, that if you actually get information on two additional things, namely how many, how many schools did the kid apply to for college, and what was the average SAT score of the schools that he applied to, if you go and add these two things, which you think of as a measure of ambition and how high the student is setting his sights, if you just for those things, then it seems like the benefit of going to more selective colleges actually goes away. Uh, so, now, first it seemed very counterintuitive to me, but then I think, no, it's not so counterintuitive because if you're an awesome student at Harvard, you're competing with a ton of other awesome students, it's hard to get special attention. But if you are an awesome student at George Mason, on the other hand, it is, uh, you, may, you may be singled out for special treatment, you may be lionized, you may get to co-author with faculty. And furthermore, the other thing is that if you are an awesome student at Harvard, you're probably going to have a lower GPA than if you're not with the same student at George Mason. So, so, so like, if you go to the better place, your rank in the class will go down, and that will actually hurt you or somewhat offset the fact that your institution's better. So in the end, maybe like the usual view is right, that you want to get your kid into Harvard, and that will give him a, a great life. But actually, the data is quite a bit less clear, and in the end, I'm not that confident. Uh, so didn't put, didn't put it in just because I, like, the, the, the evidence is so mixed, and it seems like the contrarian case is pretty interesting. Gentleman in the second row, please. My name's Ray McAllister. I'm interested in your statistics on, or your figures on underemployment among college graduates and those with advanced degrees. Obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but it sounds like there's an oversupply of graduates or an undersupply of jobs needing those that credential. Or is it that, uh, there are a lot of people who have achieved the jobs needing that credential through life skills and life experience. How do we match up the supply with the demand? Well, from what I can see, I mean, it looks like that there's an oversupply of those credentials, uh, not an undersupply, uh, or I mean, uh, under demand of it. It looks like we send lots of people to college to get degrees that aren't very useful. Uh, what was the second part of your question? Is, is how do you fix it? Or? Oh, well, but for the, for the underemployment problem is they do have the degree entering jobs that don't need it, as opposed to we have lots of people who are in jobs that say they require a degree, but they don't have the degree because they have the skills and it, it doesn't matter whether they have the degree. I mean, is that, is that what you're asking? Or am I missing the question? Are there enough jobs that need the college degree to 
employ all of the people who have college degrees? Yeah, and it appears the answer is no. Yeah. Go over here to Mark. Uh, Brittany Hackett is asking for all of your opinions on Pell Grants and other ways of helping low-income students attend college. I'm, I'm for cutting spending and making it harder to go to college to reduce the numbers because I think it's socially wasteful. Uh, not a popular view, but uh, I will not run from it. Mm. I, well, I agree with that. But what I would say is uh, typically that's ass and, and, you know, then somebody like me or, or you are sort of considered heartless. But we really need to look very carefully at that. Those people who don't finish or who pursue something that's non-remunerative and say, are we helping them by giving them money? Now, of course, the Pell Grants are different in loans because the grants you don't have to pay back, the loans you do. But if we're hurting those people, what we should do is, even if it's well-intended, stop doing the thing that's hurting them. And it appears that the aid encourages overconsumption of higher ed. And like I, I tried to, to say earlier, I think if you went to private lending, you do a lot of people, higher income, lower income, a great service by sort of requiring them to have an outside auditor, somebody who's not them, who can look at them objectively and say, this is a rational thing for you to do, or based on your academic background, uh, the degree of interest you're showing, maybe you shouldn't do that. And somebody who is low income, I think, but has shown high academic ability, wants to pursue something that is in demand and is gonna be able to go to a place that produces graduates that get hired, a lender, even if that person doesn't have collateral, would have a pretty strong incentive to lend that person money because they have a good expectation they'll get repaid. And of course, that person goes to college and they get the benefits. But if we just give everybody money, regardless of their demonstrated ability to do college level work, we're not helping those people. We're just wasting their time and often their money. All right. Okay. All right, we'll go with... Uh gentleman up in that right section. Um, my name's Nathan. I'm a consultant in Alexandria, and um, I don't have a college degree. I've been in and out of school for a while, and sometimes I go back thinking I should finish a degree. Uh, it'll happen someday, maybe. But um, it's nearly impossible to get anybody to talk to me even about getting a job. Um, I have one now because it's most people I knew somebody, but um, is that environment where a bachelor's degree is a basic requirement to even get considered for a job ever going to change on the business side? If the number of or the fraction of, of applicants uh, that have college degrees falls enough, then yes. But I think you know, college just has to get more expensive and less attractive and the propaganda has to go down. And then, uh, and, and then it will no longer matter, make, 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 make as much difference. So, you know, like, you know, you go back to earlier times when far fewer people had college degrees. You know, in 1945, the employer couldn't say, well, only consider man, man, managers with college degrees. They have all, hardly any applicant pool. So, I mean, it really does depend upon the other, other people who are competing with you and what they have. So I think that's the main, so, you know, the main source of hope, uh, you know, such as it is. It's not fair. All right. Uh, well, I'll ask you guys, uh, do you have any closing remarks you'd like to mention on the event? I mean, I, I was very happy at just, just the degree of consensus we have on there are a lot of people who currently go to college who are probably making a mistake. Uh, so 
Most of the economists that, that, I've, that I've dealt with in the past are very hostile to that idea. And, uh, and again, even though it seems like common sense, uh, the, you know, there are you know, so a very common view among labor economists especially is, you know, no, we've, we've shown that the, uh, that the payoff is actually has very little, uh, really doesn't vary by ability, which may be true if you forget that some people don't finish. But that's a really big thing to forget. All right, well, I want to thank the panelists. Thank um, you. I hope you join me in thanking the panelists for being here today.